happy to be to be with you again to share from God's Word. And I want to start with a quick question. What was your favorite subject in school? And don't say gym or recess. I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming. I get that. I do. But besides those, what was your favorite? Okay. Okay. Heard a lot of uh, a lot of good subjects that. What's that? Nothing. That's a subject too, I suppose. Now, I'm not going to ask why a particular subject was your favorite. I'm going to assume that it was because it was either something that interested you or it was easy. For me, even though I didn't really care for school back in the day, I had a favorite subject. Any guesses as to what that might be? And no, it wasn't food. No. Math. Math. Math was my favorite subject. Now, does that make sense? I mean, I mean, who likes math, right? Well, I did. And I liked it because it was easy for me. I just got it. I, I, I can't explain it. I don't understand it. I just look at it, and it makes sense. And I can still remember stuff from high school geometry, which was only a couple of years ago more than that, but things like the Pythagorean theorem. Anybody? A squared plus B squared equals C squared, right? Pythagorean theorem. How about, how about this one? How about the area of a circle? Pi r squared. Now, there are some who would say, no, 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 pi r round, cake r square. <laughs> That's an old geometry joke. But, you know, there is one area of geometry that I still find interesting today, and that is deductive reasoning. Deductive reasoning. See, that sort of reasoning uses facts, rules, and definitions, and then it develops conclusions from those. Of particular interest to me are if-then statements, or in other words, conditional statements. You guys familiar with these? You probably have used them without even knowing it, right? I mean, remember when you asked, when am I ever going to use this ever again in my life? Well, here it is. You're using it. So these if-then statements, they begin with the hypothesis, and then they end in a conclusion. And if the hypothesis is correct, then the conclusion is true. You can actually take that a step further um, to use the law of syllogisms. Oh, the things you learn uh, on Sunday morning, right? But an if-then statement would sound something like this. If I turn the water to the off position, then the water will not come out anymore. That's if you're tapping working correctly, right? So if-then. You can take that a step further and say, if the water stops coming out, then I will no longer get wet. And the law of syllogism says, then, if I turn the water off, then I will cease to get wet. Now, I know what you guys are thinking. You are looking at me going, what in the world are we learning about geometry for? 
That's a valid question. The reason I want us to understand this type of reasoning is because the Apostle Paul uses this in his letter to the Colossians. In fact, he uses it extensively throughout his writings in the New Testament. And today, as we continue to study the book of Colossians, we're going to focus in on some important conditional statements, some if-then statements. See, if we claim to be Christians, then there are some behavioral changes that take place. If there's no transformation, if there's no change, then our hypothesis may actually not be true. Now, our scripture for today is found in Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 12. We're going to go through the first verse of chapter 4. So if you want to open your Bibles there right now. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the seat pockets. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, take that home. It's our gift to you. Keep it, read it. But for now, open it to Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to use what we talked about last week as kind of a springboard into our discussion today. You may remember, last week we talked about the fact that Paul has now pivoted from a theological discussion in chapters 1 and 2, and he's pivoted to practical application. Now he's going to tell us what it means to live this out and what it looks like. He's begun, and he will continue to illustrate for us what it looks like to live as a Christian. Now, Paul, again, is talking mainly to Christians at this point, those who are followers of Christ. At the beginning of chapter 3, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, then this is what it looks like to live your life in Him. Remember, Paul tells us that we walk in Christ. He's going to tell us what that looks like. Friends, that's an if-then. That's a conditional statement. Now, if you were with us last week, then, if you were listening, you heard about the things that Paul told us that we must put off. There's, there's a, a, a litany of things that Paul told us that we must put off. As a matter of fact, he uses much stronger language. He says we must put them to death. He uses the Greek word necrotes, which is much stronger than what we realize in our English translation. So we have then put off these old behaviors that we talked about last week. We've put off the, the old uniform, right? We no longer wear that old uniform. We no longer play for that team. Now, because we have put on the new uniform, Paul's going to tell us what that new uniform looks like. He told us last week what it doesn't look like. Now he's going to tell us what it looks like. In verse 12, he writes this. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. There he's talking about putting it on, right? Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The English Standard Version begins that verse, put on then... 
right? Clearly the back half of an if-then statement, which links us back to the beginning of chapter 3, where Paul says, if you have been raised, if you have put off the old, now he says, then this is how you are to clothe yourselves. And we do this, we put on these behaviors, because we are God's chosen people. If we've been raised with him, we are part of the chosen. We are called, right? Throughout Scripture, we find God calling particular people to particular missions. Now, our mission in general, and we've talked about this before, is found in the great what? Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, before Jesus ascended back into heaven, what did he say? He said, go, right? Go and make disciples. And teach them what it means to be a disciple. Now, at Hope Church, we've kind of refined that to what we believe we are called to as a church. Anybody? We're called to honor God by loving our neighbors, sharing the gospel, and caring for each other. That's our mission. And that, and that fits very nicely into what Paul is teaching us in this letter. Now, not only are we chosen, but Paul says that we are holy. He uses the Greek word hagios, which means literally holy, or in other words, set apart for God, set apart for his purposes. We are holy because God's called us. And the word hagios, it can also mean sinless or upright, and guess what? As Christians, we are sinless. We are found upright, but only, only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's only the work of the cross. We are holy because we are now in Christ. And it's because of that sacrifice, that incredible sacrifice that, that Jesus made. You know, we talked about that trade that he made, giving up his son for us. It's because of that that we know, we know that we are loved. Paul tells us that we are beloved. The Greek word is agapos. We've talked about agape love in the past, haven't we? Agape love is an incredible love. It's a, it's a self-sacrificing love. It's a love that cares more for others than for self. And it's the kind of love that Jesus lavishes upon us. It's the kind of love that drove him to the cross. And if all of this is true, then we should put on this list of characteristics that Paul talks about in verse 12. And we could do a sermon on each and every one of those characteristics. Matter of fact, we did. We did when we looked at that chapter on love, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We looked at exactly what this kind of love looks like. And it's, it's what Paul's talking about here. And again, Paul is focusing in on relationship. How we relate to one another, right? In particular, believers. And in verse 13, we see a couple of those one another's that we referenced last week, right? 
We talked about those a hundred times in the New Testament. Here's a couple of them. Verse 13, bear with each other, or in other words, one another, and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So we are to bear or endure. In other words, have patience with one another. And let's be honest, every relationship, every relationship requires patience. It requires bearing. It's true in marriages, right? All you people that are married, right? It takes patience. My wife will tell you it takes patience to be married to me. I, and I don't say that as a joke. I'm serious. It takes patience to love me. Patience is required in friendships. Patience is required in work relationships. Patience is required in the body of believers. And that really is what Paul's speaking to here. And we are told to live forgiving one another. Forgiving. And we do that in the pattern of Jesus' forgiveness towards us. Because when we consider the staggering debt, right, that sin debt that we all owe, that, that Jesus nailed to the cross and he forgave us of that debt, when we compare that to the smallness of the debts that others have toward us, friends, it is nothing more than ingratitude for us to not forgive others. Especially, especially fellow believers. So Paul calls us, no, no, he commands us to live this new life with this new uniform, with a new outlook on relationships. And in verse 14, he gives us the glue that holds us all together. What is that glue? It's love, right? It's love. Paul writes, and over all these virtues, Put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Paul tells us here that the outer garment that we are to put on is agape. Again, agape. There it is again, that sacrificial love. Agape gives of itself and asks nothing in return. Listen to this. Agape feeds the hungry. Agape gives drink to the thirsty. Agape welcomes the stranger. Agape clothes the naked. Agape visits the sick and those who are in prison. Does that sound at all familiar? Sound like Matthew 25 and Jesus' teaching on the sheep and the goats, right? How are we doing with this? How are we doing with this? Are we giving of ourselves without expectation? Are we so caught up in our own lives that we don't have time for any of that? See, agape, friends, it's not a feeling. It's not. It's, it's, it's not this warm, fuzzy feeling that comes over you. No, agape is a choice, and it's a choice that we must make. 
Agape love is the crowning grace that binds Christian people together in unity. And it shows the world that we live differently. We play for a different team. We're on God's team. That's how they recognize us. Paul goes on in verse 15 to say, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Now, certainly, without question, this this idea of peace that Paul talks about, it's actually the Hebrew word shalom. We've talked a little bit about shalom in the past. Shalom is is this this idea of total well-being for the individual. But see, in this context here, that same shalom means the absence of conflict. The absence of conflict, specifically within the body of believers, within the church. Friends, the rule of peace should characterize the community of God's people. Remember, we are one in Christ. We are united in Christ, living at peace in Christ. goes on at the beginning of verse 16 to say, let the message of Christ dwell richly among you. So Paul tells us that, that the message, right, in other words, the, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which includes the words of Christ himself, as well as the teachings of the apostles, that, that, that gospel should dwell in us. And, and here Paul uses a word that, that is very closely related to another word that means home. It means home. And when you think of, of your home, it brings about the idea of, of, of a very high level of comfort and a high level of familiarity. And what Paul is saying is that that's what the gospel should be to us. That message should dwell richly within us. And the result of this, the, the, the letting the peace rule and letting the message dwell, what we see then is that we will be, as he says at the end of verse 16, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Friends, wisdom for all believers to teach and admonish, and it's, it's all of our jobs It's all of our jobs to teach and admonish in one way or another. The wisdom to do that comes from allowing the peace and the gospel to live within us. And again, what we see is that (laughs) these are not suggestions. You know, Paul's not saying, well, you know, if it's not too much trouble, can you let peace rule? Or or if if it's... if it's not a problem, you know, let the message dwell richly within you. No, the verbs that Paul uses here are in the imperative. These are commands. We must do this. And, and why? Why? Because this gets us into heaven? Because our, our salvation depends upon it? No, absolutely not. Paul spent the first two chapters talking about the fact that Christ is enough. We do it 
We do it, as Paul tells us, because we're grateful. We do it out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. That's why we do these things. In fact, everything we do is done out of gratitude, right? In verse 17, Paul says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. No matter what we do, friends, it should all be done as done unto the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The question, I guess, is what should we do? Well, Paul's been telling us exactly that, right? He's been telling us what we should do. He has some really good ideas on this. And he's been doing this, and he uses the rest of the chapter um, from this point on to the first verse of chapter 4, giving us practical instruction, more practical instruction. He's talked about relationships within the church. Now he's going to look at relationships within the family. Some really interesting stuff here. Because if you have been raised with Christ, if you are letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, if the message is dwelling richly within you, then this is how you live. Verse 18, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So here Paul is, is speaking to wives. And I know that there's some guys that are going to point at this and go, See? See? Look! What's the first word of this verse? What's the first word? Wives. So guys, you can stop reading right there. Because Paul is not talking to you. Your turn's coming. But he's talking to the wives right here. And wives, I just want to be clear, okay? This doesn't mean that you're inferior or that you're less intelligent or of less value than men. What it means is that men have the job of spiritual leadership within the home. And you're to submit to that godly leadership as is fitting in Christ. Okay, guys, here we go. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Love your wife. Guess what word Paul's using here? Anybody? Agape. Agape. We know what that means. Self-sacrificing love, right? A love that would lay down its life for others. Guys, are you loving your wives like that? Now we get to something that all the parents want to hear. Instructions for children, right? Verse 20, children, obey your parents and everything. Amen! Amen! All the parents say, amen! But guess what? Parents, he's not talking to you. He's talking to the children directly. 
not only are they to honor their father and mother, we see that commanded in Exodus 20, right? In the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. He goes a step further and says that they are to obey. Obey and obey in all things. Because this is pleasing to God. Now, Paul goes back to the fathers. And you know what that means? It, it, it implies what we talked about before, this greater leadership role within the home. Paul has more to say to the fathers. He says, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Other translations use the word provoke. Do not provoke your children. The idea being don't exasperate your children. Don't frustrate them. Don't cause them to feel resentment. And believe me, there is a litany of ways that parents can do this to their children. Emotional or physical abuse. Inconsistent or unfair discipline. Lots of criticism. No praise. Being absent from a child's life. Scripting them for failure. You're like, wait, what does that mean? You're no good. You'll never amount to anything. And you know what? You tell a kid that, and that's exactly what you'll get. Don't do that to your kids. So we come to a section where Paul, we finished addressing these relationships among believers, relationships within families, right? Now he turns his attention to something that you might consider a little bit odd, but it makes sense when we understand the context. And he actually puts a little bit more into this than he does into some of the other sections, and he starts talking to slaves and masters. Listen to what he writes. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for all their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, there's a couple of things that I want us to understand about these verses. See, some have used these verses to imply that, that, that Paul in particular and Christianity in general condoned the practice of owning slaves. That's not what he's doing. It's not what he's doing. What Paul's doing here is he's speaking to the context of the culture of that day. See, up to 50% of the Roman population were slaves. 50%. 
And we're not talking about just menial laborers or craftsmen. No, some of these people were professional people. They were, they were doctors. They were teachers. Paul doesn't condone this practice. What he's doing is he's, he's giving instruction to believing slaves and to believing masters regarding their relationships to one another in Christ. They should treat each other with mutual respect since their ultimate master is Christ. In fact, when we consider the greater context, we see that Paul disagrees with slavery. See, this letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians was written about the same time that Paul wrote two other letters. And those three letters were delivered by two men. One man by the name of Tychicus, and the other was actually from Colossae, and not Epaphras. But one of the men that delivered these letters to Colossae was a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. That name sound familiar? Onesimus. Yeah. And the third letter, one was to the Colossians, one was to the Ephesians. The third letter was to a slave owner in Colossae by the name of Philemon. Who, ironically, had owned Onesimus before he ran away. And in this letter that we know as the book of Philemon, Paul has some advice for this slave owner. And I'd, I'd, I'd love to go in depth, and, and, and we should probably do that someday on the book of Philemon, but I'll be brief. I'll kind of boil it down for you. Basically, what Paul tells Philemon is, you know, you can do whatever you want, but the right thing would be to set Onesimus free. Let him go, because he's of use to me and to the gospel. See, Paul does not condone slavery. In fact, he knew that Christianity could overcome the evils of slavery. And friends, it does. It does. But in the context of today's culture, this passage here speaks very clearly to employee-employer relationships. Employees, do the very best job you can because you're not ma- you're not working for the man, right? You're working for the Lord. And employers, treat your people with respect and be fair because your boss, your boss is God. All you do should be done in the name of Jesus, right? And every relationship that we have on this earth, every relationship, whether it's within the body of Christ, whether it's within your family, at work, every relationship reflects Christ and our relationship with Him. So how are you doing with your conditional statements? With your if-then statements? Because if you have received Christ, if the peace of Christ rules in your heart, if the message dwells richly within you, then there is a change in your behavior. You're transformed. You live 
differently. You wear that new uniform, right? That identifies you as a follower of Christ. And your life more closely resembles what Paul describes here in this passage. Is that true of us here today? Does the world look at us as individuals and hope as a church? And do they see that new uniform? Or do we look just like everybody else? See, friends, this is our testimony. How are we doing with that? Friends, I pray that we would all receive Christ and let the shalom of Christ rule in our hearts and in our community here at Hope Church. May the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ dwell in us richly. It's our mission. If we do that, then we can realize our vision. Lives change because Hope Church grows. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you and praise you. And Father, it is with hearts of gratitude that we come to you, Lord, and we ask that you would pour out your Spirit and allow us to let the peace of Christ rule within us, that the message would dwell richly within us, and that the power of the Holy Spirit would allow us to live lives that more closely resemble what Paul's describing here in this passage. Lord, it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can change. And we ask, Lord, that you would would work in our hearts and our minds and our lives and change us, that we might live lives that are worthy. Father, we offer up our lives as a sacrifice. And we ask that you would bless it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.